Welcome to the Mundane Truth Podcast. This is a podcast hosted by the Kenneth Supreme McGriff Support Team. Each week we will bring you information on riveting stories on wrongful convictions and actual innocence, along with legal news and updates, as well as stories of trials to triumphs. You heard it here first on the Mundane Truth. Do you have a business, service, or product that you want to get out to the world? Are you trying to build a new business and need more hands on deck? Tired of the same website or logo and need a new one? If you've answered yes to any of these, we have the solution for you. ELI Solutions is a creative agency that enjoys helping people to grow, develop, and build their million-dollar brand. Contact us today at myelisolutions.org. Hi, young world. This is Natalie, a.k.a. Sage, here on the Mundane Truth. Here in the Midwest, just chilling, getting ready for the Christmas holidays, cooking and cleaning and things like that, spending time with family, as I was telling uh, the host, the other host, Sadiq. Sadiq, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. I'm grateful, I'm thankful, I'm just really glad that we're at the end of the year and the beginning of a new one. Right, absolutely. Um, so tonight's show is, is very special, and I feel like it's very delicate, especially when you are talking to the family members that of those incarcerated that you have talked to. So tonight we're going to get on with Marquan Gordon. I had a conversation with him around Thanksgiving holiday that week. And it's such a privilege, and it really taught me, as I said in the in the last show, not to judge people because of their circumstances. You know, this was like my nephew, my brother I was hearing, my father, my 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 cousin, my uncle. You know, he was so many things in one, and Marquan Gordon had a big story to tell and uh, as I am told, his family is not yet on the line. And if so, I'm going to go ahead and introduce them whenever they come on, and I will give them some commentary as well so that they can voice their opinion. So before we get into the recording, Sadiq, I want you to just share what you know about the man, what you can tell us about Marquan Gordon. All right. Marquan Gordon, I've been knowing him for about 20 years now. And uh, he came into prison as a youngster, made some mistakes as a youth, obviously, like many of us have. And he's made a transition from boyhood to manhood while in prison. And it's unfortunate that the laws have changed, that had he been sentenced today with the new laws, he wouldn't have received the amount of time he has received. Unfortunately, Marquand was sentenced to 140 years for a crime in which no one was murdered, shot, maimed, or injured. And these are the kind of stories that we want to be able to get out, stories like Marquand and many others. This is a man that has truly rehabilitated himself in so many different facets of his life, man. It's just been really amazing to watch how this individual has grown. You know, so he has very interesting stories that I'm sure that we would like to be privy to. Right. And so just briefly, right before we go into the recording, explain how one gets 140 years. All right. In the law, there's a statute, um, 18 U.S.C. 924-C1C, which is what they call a stacking provision. Is when you commit a crime with the use of a firearm and you commit mm-hmm. multiple crimes with the use of a firearm. So if you commit robbery A with a firearm, you'll get seven years for robbery A, 
and you'll get 25 years for using a firearm in robbery B to run consecutive with with the robbery in A. So you'll get a total of, just for the firearm, 32 years for the firearm. So if you have a third one, then you'll get an additional 25 years tacked on to your sentence to run consecutive, which means after you complete the previous sentence. So in Marquand's case, he had several robbery cases in which a firearm was introduced. And as a result, he got seven years for the first robbery, and 25 years was stacked on to every robbery after that to be commenced after the completion of the previous 25 years. So total mm-hmm. 100 and some odd years in which he's serving. But the okay. law has changed since then, saying that that is an unjust law. It targeted minorities again because they had, you know, we know the story how these people had put these guns in our neighborhoods and we picked them up and we did what we did with them. Then they came out with this harsh crime to keep us in prison for the rest of our life. They came back and said that was an unjust law and they changed it. But it will only benefit those that commit that type of crime now. So those that committed it in the past still have to linger in prison serving out those lengthy unjust sentences that have been acknowledged by the government. Right. Okay. All right. Very, very interesting. Um, So we're going to go ahead into the recording right now. And after that, Sadiq, we will have your commentary. If the family members are on at that point, we will also hear from them. And then I'll give my commentary. Sure. Well, first, thank you for this opportunity. My name is Marquand Gordon, FBOP registration number 4597406. I'm currently serving a 140-year sentence for armed bank robbery. But before I get into about my case and my time in prison, I want to first share a bit of my backstory to give some backstory, background, a little background to my journey today. I'm a 48-year-old father of four, grandfather of six. I was born and raised in South Philadelphia. I was raised in a loving, close-knit family of hard workers, men and women who were chefs, bakers, seamstress, writers, dancers, Answers of which I'm extremely proud to say my granddaughters are the fourth generation to take up the art. So yes, we were overall good people. Perfect? No. Poor? Absolutely. But we had love and abundance. We had our struggles and tragedies and failures too, but our love and support amongst each other has always been strong, and it still is today. My mom had me at just 17 years old. My father, who was older, he died only a year after my birth, leaving her to raise me alone. My mom did her best. She had family chipping in, like grandmothers and grandfathers, great-grandmothers, aunts, and other family, too. My mother was an inspiration. She still is today, I might add. You know, she, she promoted education. She promoted being well-behaved, having manners, and speaking without using slang. She always supported whatever interest me. She supported me when I was acting as a kid in the neighborhood playhouse. She supported my writings because she used to marvel at the stories I wrote when I was in school, you know, for assignments and things. Then there was computers and electronics. She supported me in that. As I was the kid, all the families used to call to set up their VCRs and Betamaxes. <laughs> How about that for a blast from the past? Unfortunately, by the 1980s, the epidemic that is crack cocaine would enter our lives and derail and leave an indelible mark in my psyche. My mom and a will-be boyfriend, the so-called father figure, became addicted to crack, and as a result, their behaviors and care for what the eyes of a 
10, 11, young 12-year-old boy was she became tragically irresponsible and horrific. I knew the boyfriend was a drug dealer because he didn't have any real nine to five job. Plus we had drug paraphernalia that was, you know, always strewn about the house. Uh, uh, there were guns that I used to play with. They'd be loaded and unloaded. Bullets were, bullets were around. But by the grace of God, I never had an accident, you know, when one was discharged or something like that. But the thing about the, that, that guy, it was, it was the drug fuel beatings that I would witness by his hands against my mother. The calling of bitches and whores, the disrespect. I remember one year we had a New Year's celebration, family and friends about the house. And uh, my mom sitting there, my beautiful mom, I might add, she was sported a black eye from the boyfriend. And I remember feeling so hurt and embarrassed and worse helpless because nobody seemed to be able to, to do anything to help our situation. These violent episodes lasted a few years, and I believe it was at this time much of the values and principles and being a good-natured kid began to go out the window. The bond between my mother and I was severely damaged as I began high school, and I, you know, I gravitated towards the streets then. It's where I would see the neighborhood drug dealers, their cars, their lifestyle, their celebrity, and I became fascinated by it all, and I wanted the same for myself. So I dove right in head first. Heck, most of the kids my age were doing it. Looking back, I didn't really fear my mom finding out what I was doing. My grandmother, yes, I was scared to death of my grandmother. But uh, my mom, I figured mom, she understood. She knows how it, she knew how it is. You know, she had a boyfriend who did it. She knew of others who did it. So it was no big deal. I was just beating the man like everybody else was. But as any drug dealer would tell you, one that'll keep it real anyway, it, it, at some point it's inevitable that violence, violence, you know, will, will enter your life. And I was no exception. At some point or another, my drug dealing had me using guns to rob, threaten, intimidate, and at times protect myself. But despite this reality, I don't believe I've ever been a, a, a person that's quick to violence. That said, I was absolutely a person who believed in doing whatever is necessary to get things done. No matter who got hurt, or who got scared, or who got violated, I got it done. And I know that sounds sociopathic, because when I look back, that's exactly what it feels like. Somebody who didn't care, someone who didn't care about the feelings or well-being of, of, of any other person. And that's, that's tragedy. That's tragic. Through all this, I've been shot. I've seen people shot. And I had friends killed. I've given and received beatings. This is all normal stuff in South Philly. Just part of being in the game. And as I imagine in, in, in many other neighborhoods, you know, urban neighborhoods around the country. So by the 90s, as I left high school, my mother, she really had no clue how to reel in her one and only son from the destructive fast I was on. But if I'm honest, short of moving us to another country where there was no drugs or guns, or other crimes, I don't believe there was anything she could do to stop this because I had created in my mind an insatiable thirst for ill-gotten gains. I mean, I, I created a need to be the man. I created a need to have it all. I need a need to have it now. And also, you know, the lack, the, uh, the lack of compassion and remorse for innocent victims, you know, I believe I created that, you know, by being inured to the violence that I witnessed as a child and later in the neighborhood. I mean, the beatings, the stabbings, the shootings and killings. By the time I was 17 or 18 years old, this was so normal. Just another day in the hood, no matter and, and no matter which side of the violence I was on, giving it or receiving it. Pretty much, I believe a long prison sentence or death was not a matter of if, but just a matter of when. And in the meantime, I would totally placate my mother and my grandmother 
by going to college for a year or Cheney University. Only thing, I wasn't thinking about school. I was thinking about which car I would drive that day, which outfit I would wear, what girl would be sweating me that day. You know, and, and, planning, and actually planning the next drug deal as soon as class was out. I just couldn't shake the ego and the thirst. And I probably didn't want to because I saw no other way. And then there's my, and then there's my children, my sweet children, whom I, whom I neglected totally this, at, at this time. My daughter, Kiwi, who I failed to protect. My son, Quire, to whom, I, to whom I showed the worst example of a man or a father. To Q Jr., to whom I would allow my ego and my self-centered mind keep me from putting him first before, before his mom and I's relationship. And then there's my, my youngest, Shay Shay, to whom I was so selfish. I couldn't be more ashamed of that. And then there's my number one. I'm so sorry to all of you, especially you, number one. So, as you see, I began this story talking about the fact that I'm, I'm currently serving a 140-year sentence for armed bank robbery. These are robberies that I committed in 1995, 1996, and 1997. I was only 21 to 23 years old when I did them. I was arrested for those robberies in 1999 when the four men who I committed those robberies with, they actually got arrested for a separate robbery for my case. So I foolishly went to trial because I was not willing to accept any kind of responsibility for my actions. Needless to say, I was found guilty and blamed every person and every, any and everything under the sun except for myself. I blamed the judge, the prosecutor, the FBI, my friends and family, and of course the guys who testified against me. And also anyone else who didn't see my downfall the way I saw it. The thing is, this irrational uh, state of mind was percolating for many years before I even lost trial. Back in the hood, a common theme amongst my peers was that we were owed something, as if we somehow deserved better lives, better homes, better cars, better clothes. But we deserved it not because we worked hard for it, not because we had jobs or went to school or college and earned it. We all believed this because we thought of ourselves as entitled to better lives, but no real plan or know how to get it, except for this easy, lazy way of violence, selling drugs, robbing, scamming, Take advantage of people, and that's all pretty tragic. All right, so as you see, my thirsting greed grew into bank robbery. It was faster. It was all profit. You didn't need buying money. Only a gun and a total disregard for terrifying and putting fear in it, into an innocent victim. When we robbed those banks, we had different rules. There was someone who, who went inside the bank. There was someone who sat in a car directly outside the bank. There was someone who sat in a different car a few blocks away. And sometimes there was someone who could run interference if the cops pursued us. I performed, I performed each one of those roles at some point or another. But mostly, I went inside. Why? Because I was an idiot, and they knew it. I was the youngest of all of the guys that, that we did these robbers with. And I don't say that to, 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 to deflect blame or responsibility, because I constantly made the choice to commit those robberies. But was there some, some manipulation at times? Absolutely. I mean, early, earlier in the robberies, we were, in, we were in my mother's car, and I didn't, I didn't even realize we were, where we were going that morning. The next thing you know, the robbery was happening, and we were there to, to run interference if we needed to. There were other times when people used to fake like they were sick because they, they didn't want to go inside the bank. And you know what I used to say? Uh, what does it matter who goes in? We all get the same time in prison anyway. Now, is that the most idiotic, foolish statement you've ever heard? And worse, how about untrue that statement is? Because the fact is, I'm in my, my 23rd consecutive year in prison. 
and I got 117 more to go. And how about in, in 2014 was the last year anyone else was in prison who committed those robberies with me. You know, some of the others were released sooner than that. And if you wonder how something like that is possible, it's simple. I took the U.S. government to trial. And it also might surprise you to know there were no physical injuries reported by any of the bank robberies at any of the banks. Not a single gunshot was fired. Now, you know, even though nobody reported physical injuries, I understand that that doesn't reflect the psychological trauma. I mean, you know, you go in and you scare those people, you wave guns at them, you're yelling at them. Listen, I take full responsibility for that. I mean, that, that was horrific. It's tragic. And uh, the thing is, now I understand it. That, that, that uh, you know, when you scare someone like that, there's, there's going to be psychological trauma and, and, and psychological injury, even if there aren't physical injuries. But, you know, again, you know, nobody was shot, not a gun was fired. And, that, and this is the kind of time I got. Um, also, I, I don't have a, le a lengthy criminal history. I have a juvenile conviction, you know, for riding a stolen car when I was 16 years old. And I have an adult drug conviction when I was 18 years old. You know, so basically I received, you know, a life sentence for going to trial. And I was also sentenced by a practice called stacking. It's where where I received consecutive sentences because guns were used in each of the robberies. Whereas normally, sentences are run concurrently. For years, I've tried unsuccessfully to fight for my freedom. And I'll continue to do so until I have it. And there is hope. Because in 2018, the first step back was signed into law by Donald Trump. You know, this practice, which resulted in me receiving a 140-year sentence, has been changed, actually. So today, if I were resentenced on my charges, I would receive a, a significantly less sentence. But, and it's a big but, the changes in the law weren't made retroactive, meaning they only apply to someone, who's, someone who is convicted today, not people like myself whose charges are 25 years old. I do believe at some point the changes in the law will be made retroactive, but when... Uh, that's another question. I just pray that it's sooner rather than later. Now, the past 23 years, you know, they've been traumatic and heartbreaking, to say the least. I mean, my seven-year-old, you know, then, she's 30 now. I've missed first days of school. i miss proms, graduations. i missed all of the bonding with my children. I've lost people. I've lost grandparents and aunts and uncles, cousins, friends to death. I've seen the sadness in my mother's eyes and in her voice as her one and only child who failed at life miserably. And that's just a few things that occurred on the outside. The inside of these prison walls <clears throat> are a whole different animal. My first 19 years, I spent them in the U.S. in the United States penitentiaries, where it's eat or be eaten, right is wrong, and wrong is right. It's where it's a place where sitting at the wrong table to eat can get you stabbed. It's where allowing any form of perceived disrespect go unanswered, you know, it could get you robbed or even raped. You know, it, it, it's a place where I actually sold drugs, where I landed myself, you know, six months in solitary confinement. That's where I had fights and got even more time in solitary confinement. I've lost privileges like visitation and using the phone for months, even a whole year before. It's where I drank and smoked weed. It's where I ingested heroin and nearly died. Listen, I've seen stabbings where the guards stood there just saying to, saying to the people, stop that, put the knife down. And they, and they just ignored them as if the guard wasn't even there. And then there's peer pressure. Peer pressure is so strong and dangerous in the penitentiary. I mean, if a fight breaks out between some people from, 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 from your town, say Philadelphia, and another group from another city or town, you know, you, it's a fight between them.
Do you have a business, service, or product that you want to get out to the world? Are you trying to build a new business and need more hands on deck? Tired of the same website or logo and need a new one? If you've answered yes to any of these, we have the solution for you. ELI Solutions is a creative agency that enjoys helping people to grow, develop, and build their million-dollar brand. Contact us today at myelisolutions.org. And, and you don't jump in, you don't jump in there and help, or you don't at least get in there and get your ass kicked too, you almost certainly will be targeted for, for assault not much later. So you've you got to be constantly wary of people and their intentions. Rarely in the, pen, in the penitentiaries are they just well-intentioned people. Many times it's about what you have or what you can get someone, ranging from what might seem small, like, like a roll of toilet paper, which actually a friend of mine was killed over, which <laughs> is crazy. And, and and also to the drugs, somebody somebody may want you to pay for it just because last week you smoked their weed or used their heroin right with them, so they want you to pay for it this week. You know, there was a time early early in the my, early into this bid, just after I lost trial, an old head from Philly told me, he said, "Well, you just blew trial, so when you get to the pen, penitentiary, you got to do three things." He said, "Number one, work in your case." Always fight for your freedom. Number two, find yourself some kind of hustle to support yourself so you're not a burden to your family for money and, and you can help pay for trips if they, if they send you somewhere far away. And number three, safeguard yourself by working out, staying in shape, and always have a knife in case something jumps off. I followed those steps literally to the T because as a 25-year-old with a, with a fresh life sentence, you know, what did I know? I figured it was sound advice. The thing is, as I think back about that advice, that, that advice now, 23 years later, right now I'm probably about the same age of, of the old head who, who gave me that advice, you know, initially. Who, who I've actually heard that guy is dead too, which is crazy. But today, I could totally give that same three-step advice to a youngster just coming to the, to the system. Only I could give it with a positive bent. Number one, the same, same as, same as the, uh, the other advice I got, work in your case. The most important thing about prison is getting out of prison. I, I, I surely believe that. Number two, find some way to support yourself. Learn a trade. Get in food service. Something that you enjoy. Something that you could possibly make a career of when you do get out. And number three, yeah, your health. Take care of yourself. Exercise your mind, your body, and your soul whenever possible. The thing is, healthcare and also healthcare in prison is, is terrible. I could actually tell you, uh, I can actually tell you a thousand horror stories, but even just one story about about that is enough. So yeah, stay fit, work out regularly, and always take some classes like financial literacy. Always take some classes like financial literacy, real estate, or even learn a new language, as I did. You know, I've learned Spanish since I've been here. Read it, write it, you know, speak it. Uh, read as much as possible, and get in touch with the higher, with your higher power too. I believe spiritual health is just as important, if not more. So, at this point, you've heard a good bit about my journey. Except you haven't heard who I am today. You haven't heard what guides me. You haven't heard what fuels me, what inspires me. And uh, if I could sum it up in one word, that word would be gratitude. 
and that's because I'm so so truly grateful for the man that I am today and for the people who aided and assisted me and gave me opportunities. The people who saw me, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. So I'm so grateful for my, my mother's steadfast love and support. Without it, who's no, who knows where I'd be? And all praise be to God, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, who's been watching over me and protecting me and saving me for myself for these 48 years. All right, so this attitude, this attitude of gratitude and humility, you know, it took years to manifest itself inside of me. Because the truth is, in 1999, when I came to prison, I was nothing but anger, bitterness, and resentment. Fortunately, and I believe it's just that fortune, that my destructive first few years in the pen got me considerable time in the hole or, or spent in solitary consignment. I was in there six months at a, at a time before, and, and more than once. And the thing is, in the hole, you're left with, you're left with only you. You're left with your mind and only your thoughts. You can only sleep for so long. You can only do push-ups for so long. There's no TVs, sometimes no radios or books. For me, for me these times would be about reflection. You know, a, a, a trip through time, wondering how I got here. It would also be a time where I believe my soul and conscience would actually cry out. You know, I've had nightmares that, that are plenty. I've woke up. You know, many times after visions of violence, some of the violence I committed, some of the violence I was a victim of. But it's also, um, I got the, those violent memories of, you know, the stuff of my mother and the and the ex-boyfriend. They really stand out to me, and, and, and I doubt I'll ever forget the look of fear in my mother's eyes. And the truth is, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I, I put that same look of fear in people's eyes when I was robbing those banks. But, you know, and... and Actually, but that is precisely why in 2006, after the last time I had spent six months in solitary, when I got out, I vowed to change totally, change my life, change my thinking patterns, change my attitude, and more importantly, never again use violence against another human being for as long as I live. But with that, as you can imagine, change is easier said than done, especially in a penitentiary. There are so many elements working against you. For instance... I once saw someone beaten terribly with a baseball bat. And, you know, there was blood everywhere. And there, and there was actually a war, a race war, about to break out because of it. So, you know, after that happened, our baseball season got canceled. And the next year, uh, our bats were actually tethered to a fence, if you could imagine that. So after a couple seasons, they left us, you know, they, they left us tethered. And then so they said, okay, we'll give you the bats back. And sure enough, some fool grabbed the bat to go hit somebody again. Well, I can't tell you what came over me. I even I can't even tell you today because I wonder. But something just wouldn't allow me to sit there and watch another horrible beating like that. So I went and I took the bat out of the guy's hands and I left the field. Now you think that inmates would be happy about what I did? Nope. I can't even tell you the heat that I took for doing the right thing. I mean, the things that were said about me. That guy's the police. That guy's doing the police job. They, you know, they had even... They had even discussed boycotting the softball league because I was the commissioner of the league. But but that's just one example of many I could give you about changing and trying to do the right thing in the penitentiary. Another process of change that I believe in greatly is, is in the physical, in exercise, and in working out. And not just and I don't mean not just some weekend warrior, but I mean I used to do daily workouts, three or four hour sessions. You know where who, who has time for that, right? People in prison have time for that. And, and the thing is, could you say I overdid it? Sure. 
I mean, sometimes I did burpees for two hours straight, and then I went and played handball another two hours. For another day, I might lift weights for two hours and then go running for an hour. But the thing is, I felt so good afterwards. My mind would be clear. I wouldn't feel any anger, no frustration. Another plus was people stayed away from me because nobody wants to work out like that. <laughs> but for me, it was so therapeutic. And I mean, it, it, it opened doors. The recreation department noticed me. They hired me. They, they hired me. They trained me. And they certified me to teach other classes like spinning, cycling, uh, Swiss ball training. That's with the big, big stability ball. I did a 50 years and older class, you know, for health and fitness. And twice a year, I facilitated the biggest loser competition, helping inmates lose uh, unhealthy or unwanted uh, pounds. They don't, don't think my change was all about the physical because it wasn't. My mind needed fixing, too. And when I got out that hole in 2006, I committed to that also with education. So I, I've, I've actually taken and completed over 125, 130 or so adult continuing education courses, psychology courses, study courses, and pre-release workshops that have generated hundreds of recorded programming hours. I've taken behavior modification, criminal thinking, parenting, Microsoft computing, uh, breaking barriers, domestic violence, addictive behavior, real estate, victim impact, and, and, and many more. But from each of these classes, um, I always walk away with something significant towards my change. But I gotta highlight a couple, like the victim impact. My God, was that an enlightening class, enlightening class. The um, learning the psychological effect of crime or violence, whether the violence actually happened or is perceived, is just as traumatic because if you, if you point a gun to someone and you tell them that you're going to shoot them or you're going to kill them or you're going to come back and get them later, they believe it. And then, and then their mind goes into a panic. I mean, you know, they start to think of their husband. They start to think of their wives, their children, your mother, your father. You know, you think you'll never see them again or hug them again or kiss them again. And then what about, you know, a victim that, that quits their job or moves, or moves from their home or needs counseling, all because you scared the damn bejesus out of them with some senseless violence to feed your thirst? I tell you, I mean, I mean, I am truly embarrassed for my disregard for another human being in that, in that um, you know, in, in, for the things that I did. But, again, you know, there's gratitude. There is gratitude, and, and I'm grateful that I was able to see the error of my ways because I just I could just as easily be stuck in those same criminal thinking errors and never getting my mind and life together. For me, it was about taking responsibility. Forget that I was younger than the others. Forget that I got manipulated. You know, um, you know I needed to be stopped. Cause, Cause who knows where my greed would have led? You know, I me mean, more victims, tragedy. So so yeah, I, I am extremely thankful. But now, how can I keep others from going down the same path? You know. Uh, how can I keep others from going down the same destructive path that I did? You know, I want to help young fathers, you know, keep help keep them out of prison and keep them with their children who desperately need them. You know, the classes that I take, I found those, um, I found exercise classes that I instructed, you know, the weight loss competitions I facilitated, I found to be really, I found that, that I really enjoy helping people. You know, when you see them learn, you see them strive, you see them get better, you know, it gives me great pleasure. And so at this time, currently, I actually serve as a, as a uh, mental health companion for special needs inmates who would, who would have difficulty functioning and living in general population. I'm in a program called the Skills Therapeutic Living Community. There are only two of these programs in the country. I'm actually assigned a participant who I'm, whom I live with 24 hours, seven days a week. 
you know, the, the participants can have traumatic brain injuries or they can suffer from uh, psychological disorders like mental retardation, schizophrenia, PTSD. They can have sexual impulse disorders and, and many more. And I was referred to this program by my counselor and other prison officers who thought that I'd make a good mentor here. So, so I took the challenge. And um, so I assist participants in challenging their criminal thoughts and beliefs. I also encourage their growth and preparation to returning back home and, and, you know, back into society. I teach classes here as well as in fitness and, and in public speaking. You know, um, I'm guided and trained by, by the prison psychologist and the program coordinator. She's, she's both. Her name is Dr. Benitez. And our treatment staff, Mr. G Mr. Delgado, Mr. Cherry, they also help in, in my guidance. See, this is my training ground for when I'm released. I'll be able to atone and give back by mentoring our youth sorely in need of direction to keep from going down destructive paths. My family also needs me. You know, they need me for guidance and direction. My children, my grandchildren, nephews, cousins. For me, a dream job would be running a rec center, you know, a safe place where children can come. They can learn the arts like, like drawing, painting, singing, dancing, playing instruments, anything. You know, participating, they could also participate in safe sports leagues where they can learn and experience life lessons in about winning and losing and teamwork, racism, humility, and, you know, authority. You know, I'll, I believe that, 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 that I'm, on a, I'm on a mission to leave this world a better place, you know, when, I, when I'm done. And, and, that's, and that's is, uh, that is my bond. That is my word to life. That's what I'm going to do. And uh, thank, you for, thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak out, tell my story. All right, this is Paige again, everybody, on the Mundane Truth. And uh, that was Marquan Gordon. And I'm like, I'm hearing a doctor, a litigator, a paralegal, a student, and he's a counselor. Like, I'm just hearing so many things. And, you know, I really, I really am proud of that, Brother Sadiq, because of the fact that you have been convicted of these things and you're doing 140 years and you're honest about it. And then to expose yourself to the world and talk about this experience, to be naked in that sense, of this is what I did, but that is not who I am. You know, that really means a lot. So, Sadiq, what did sure. you think of that? I thought the same, and I think that he was brutally honest. I mean, I mean, that was the pinnacle of honesty. He went honestly with respect to the impact that he had on his victims, the impact that he had on his family, the impact that he had on himself. He's accepted responsibilities for some offenses that he committed when he was yet 23 years old. He was honest with respect to um, the things that he witnessed growing up as a kid within the household, without the household, which is a typical of an urban youth. Um, but he was brutally honest about it. He's accepted that this was a reality that he had to face, he had to contend with, and in the mix of it, he made some awful decisions. But again, without killing anyone, without brutally maiming anyone, without uh, uh, harming anyone. And you mean to tell me you give me a sentence to die in spite of the 150 certifications, in spite of me being in the skills program, which is the one of a kind throughout the BOP to help others, man, adjust to prison life and then to adjust to a normal life outside in society, I still cannot get a break with these courts. You know, he changed his thinking 
Um, he doesn't have a severe criminal history. I think he spoke of one drug charge and driving around in a stolen car as a juvenile. But yet, man, he would be sure. treated and sentenced as though he was a Charlie Manson, as he was this real brutal maniac killer. And that, again, was holding him in prison are laws that were outdated and ultimately changed under Donald Trump's regime. But he cannot benefit from them because those laws have not been made retroactive. Like many of the laws that's on the books now haven't been made retroactive, but are benefiting those that commit crimes now. They're the only ones that won't have to do the butt of the time like the brothers that are locked behind the walls. But this particular individual here is an outstanding and amazing individual I think we all witnessed how articulate he was. Think about this. He said he didn't get it. He didn't get back in trouble uh, um, after his first two stints in the hole for six months apiece, and that was back in like 2006 or 2009, I believe he said. Well, if it was 2009, right. he was 2000 and maybe 2022. No disciplinary. He's been picked out of the cream of the crop in order to be. Uh, in this particular program, um, you know, it was just, right. you know, it's just amazing that the transformation that this individual has made and he doesn't have any bitterness or hatred in his heart. He understands that, right. you know, that there was some ma- manipulation as a child, um, you know, in the game, that his older peers may have taken advantage of him in the street game, which is a usual case. But this is an individual that stood up faced that, went to trial in hopes that he could have beat it, but he didn't beat it. And he just like endured one trial after another. This is one of those stories that I want to see that's going to be a triumph in the end. I've worked with him personally Absolutely. for nearly 20 years. i worked with this individual mm-hmm. on his case for nearly 20 years. I've walked several prison yards with him for nearly 20 years. So we've walked, we talked, we worked out. We shared each other's pain, grief, and agonies from family to friends, from partners that went home. Um, and this, this is an individual that I've acknowledged as a growing, maturing brothers. When we think of the saying that Malcolm X said that penitentiaries would become universities for young blacks, this is one of the brothers here that we heard tonight that has his degree in humanity, that is looking to strive to make the world a better place based on principles of truth and honesty. We witnessed it. He did an immaculate job, man, in his rehabilitation, man. Um, he did. Right I now, like the he, fact that he was he was, he was was real and raw, um, and I really did appreciate that. And, again, it takes a lot. Host on the Mundane Truth Show, how are you? I'm fine. All right, and we would love to hear from you. Uh, we had a recording. I had an interview with son, Marquand Gordon, around Thanksgiving, and, you know, like I was saying, he really expressed himself immaculately, and I've never met anybody like that before in my life, somebody who is, it's almost as almost, you know, it's almost as if he's out, you know. You know, I've heard a doctor and a lawyer and a counselor, everything with him, and, you know, he's such an educated young man. So I want to hear your commentary. If you've heard the interview, you know, we would like to know what you thought about that or if you would have any I did not hear the interview. I didn't hear the interview. Okay. That's fine. No, what can you tell us about Marquand Gordon? Oh, wow. Um, 
a young man that I'm so proud of. Always has been, but I'm really proud of him now. He's grown so much. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm basically speechless. Um, he's grown so much. He, he's done a lot of hard work to to uh, to change, to to atone, to refine. It's funny, you know, Kwanzaa. I'm in him here decorating for Kwanzaa. Um, my family's we're going to get together on the 26th. Family, you know, for Moja unity. So, um, and and that's where he came from. That's where he was raised. Um, a single mother, uh, just trying to get you know get through life and, and, and have a, uh, uh, not a wet of a home for your, for you and your son, because that's where I came from. Uh, but then the streets are often are a little, little stronger than, than home and, and, and mom. And, but, um, he and I, we've always been close. I, I love the fact that, you know, you own it, you own, own, own up for what you've done. Hello? Miss Claudia, are you on the line? Sadiq, are you on the line? Yes, I am. I'm right here with you. Okay. Miss Claudia, are you on the line? Yes. Yes, I'm on the okay. line. Go, go on. Okay. Um, just basically, and, and, and what we're going through now is, that draconian uh, sentence that he received is just totally, you know, Tom, when I wanted him to sit down, as I say that term, you know, not not forever, but, you know, real incorrigible, and he needed to sit down for it and, you know, take note of what was, what he, how his life was going, uh, but not forever. Oh, my goodness. You know, people uh, commit far worse crimes than, than what he's done. Not to make light or a little of what he's done, but uh, that was just, it's just totally ridiculous. So, like I said, um, knowing Mark, I I, I never doubted that he would be the man he is today. And and I I just want to, I just want to experience that guy. You know, I sit at home and I think about walking the door, what's the guy to want? You know, And it's, it's just been such a roller coaster with the courts. You know, we've been on everything. You know, you never have no idea how often, oh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, that looks good. Looks good, looks good, and it never happens. You know, and, and this, this, this current situation we're, we're uh, waiting on, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. You know, it's just, it's, come on, give them another chance. That's all we ask, give them another chance. Absolutely, ma'am. And you have my heart. You have my heart. And it's okay. It's okay to, to express yourself in an emotional way. I mean, that was your son. And, you know, I've done the same thing. But, you know, as I had mentioned before at the start of the show, it, it takes a lot to, to sit down, to do that much, and to tell the world, you know, this is my case, this is in my history, this is what I did, but you mm-hmm. know what, today I'm a better man. And that's exactly what I have heard on the line. I did not hear a criminal. I didn't hear someone that committed a crime, you know, that robbed a bank, that has 140 years. I didn't get that at all. No, so never. I, 
you know, and I hope and pray that in 2022, you know, I'm really hoping for another connection, another reconnection that we can do with him because I love to talk with him again because he was an educator. I felt like I was talking to a college professor of mine. (laughs) That's great. That's great. So how was he, how did you connect with him now? What was that process? Um, It was quite a process because we have to go with time and we also have to go with different regulations that they have in the prisons and, you know, what accommodates them, what accommodates us and how we can go about actually scheduling the interview. So, you know, it's, it's quite a process. Some, um, some are a little bit easier to get by than others, but we eventually make it work and that's our number one goal. That's great. So I believe this uh, conversation with him was a golden 30 minutes, I believe. And I, honestly, I didn't want the call to end. I was literally telling my my uh, my boss, you know, can we have more time? Can we have more time? But you know, that's what it felt like. I felt like I was talking. I to, can go on and on and on. Thank you. Like Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, <laughs> Huey P. Newton. I felt like I was talking to my father, my brother. Like he 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 represents a strong man, like the epitome, yeah. the epitome. Yeah, you know, it's funny that. Um, I remember the first time he got in trouble. We're sitting in, yeah. the, in the youth study yeah. center, and and the, the I guess it was the prosecutor. I don't know. Yeah, probably because she was kind of sarcastic <laughs> a little bit. And she <laughs> said, "Oh my goodness, he's so articulate." And I thought, "Well, he's educated, yeah." So you know, when you started your your intro was as very very you know articulate and he was very well. And I said, "Yeah, yes, he right. he was never." A, stupid guy where, well, some may say he was, but, you know, intelligent and well-spoken and well, well-read and I have to catch up with his finish with him. <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. Good. That's uh, some good energy yeah. right there. Yeah. Okay. So will I, do you have, um, will I be able to hear it? This um, I didn't know. I, my phone, I was not near my phone I would love to. I mean, it played for about, I believe that was, yeah, that was about a 30-minute interview, and it was in two parts. And it was basically me asking him a series of questions. And you can hear me in the beginning, like, tell us about your upbringing, things like that, and what landed you to be incarcerated and the history behind that. And he was telling us that history, what got him into trouble and what he's doing now today. Um, And I'm also being told that we're going to send you the link tomorrow to that recording so that you can hear it. Oh, okay. Oh, great. Um, Great. Yes, ma'am. And we did, you know, we did play that at the the very beginning of the show, but we'll definitely um, send you that interview. All right. Great. I appreciate it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sadiq, do you have any questions for Ms. Claudia? No, how you doing, Claudia? This is Sadiq. This is Q's friend once again. How are you? I'm I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. You know we we're gonna try to bring Q home to you sooner than later. We're gonna try our best. Hey. He just gave an amazing interview. He allowed his story to be placed out there, and we just want to be able to highlight your son as being the great man that he's become since he's been in prison. And like I was saying earlier in the interview before you got there, I've been knowing Q for about 20 years now. We've been through a lot together, and we're going to still go through a lot together until we bring him home. You can rest assured okay, that the family, here, the family here, the family here, Mundane Truth, are going to stand behind him and you as well. 
because this is what we do. We need to expose the mundane truth. All right? Um, Thank you. Thank but, you. Appreciate but, but I want you to know that I've walked with him for a long time on many different prison yards throughout the country and that your son has grown immensely. He has evolved and matured, man, in leaps and bounds. And in spite of his circumstances, he's sure to make his mother proud. You know, he's a man that has come to grips with his past, his present, as well as his future. He acknowledges that. And um, listen, you can rest assured. Thanks. Thank you. Nice meeting, everyone. Good night. Thank you all for listening to the Mundane Truth Podcast. We truly hope you have learned something today and that you will take action. Early in life, I learned that if you want something, you better make some noise. Malcolm X.